We had just finished last week a 13-week series on the Apostles' Creed. Seven weeks ago, we had been in the portion of the Apostles' Creed that described his ascension. And uh, we, you know, we kind of covered it knowing that we would come back to it uh, seven weeks later. On Thursday, that was 40 days from Easter. And 40 days from Easter is when the church normally celebrates Ascension. And so today, Sunday, is Ascension Sunday. So just so you know, Ascension took place in the calendar on <clears throat> this last Thursday, and we, we, uh, we celebrate it this week. Some of the things that we're going to be talking about in the Ascension <clears throat> are the fact that Jesus has a continuing work. It's not just that Jesus left the earth and then stopped doing stuff. Uh, I like to, I, I think it's a phrase actually of my dad's that God, uh, the father and Jesus, the son are not just up in heaven playing ping pong. Uh, as much as I love ping pong and it would be great that, you know, that God would endorse such an endeavor. God is not playing ping pong in heaven. Jesus has a continuing work that he's doing. Uh, we're going to look at the apostles question that they ask him in this passage. We're going to look at the importance of the spirit. That is what Jesus says, what they're supposed to do and, and how that is supposed to affect their lives. We're going to look at how the ascension is an indicator of Christ's total victory. Uh, we're going to look also at this idea of man living with his creator or man living with God. And then finally, we're going to look at what the ascension calls for us to do as part of the gospel. The ascension, hearing the, hearing the account of the ascension should call us to faith. And there is a certain thing that we should do. There, there are actions that the gospel calls us to take. So we're going to begin in this passage right at the, at the beginning in verse one, Luke says, uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach to help you understand what this means. Luke, the, the writer of the gospel of Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. And he says in the first book, that is in the first book that I wrote the gospel of Luke, I've dealt with all of what Jesus began to do and to teach. And the key phrase there is began. The implication is that this is a book, the book of Acts is a book of not just the acts of the apostles, but all that Jesus continued to do and to teach. So the book of Acts is not the acts of the apostles. It's also the acts of Jesus. And these are the acts that Jesus has done by his spirit through his people. And so this, this continuing work that is going on, Jesus had finished his earthly ministry in John 17, before Christ even went to the cross, he said, before he died and was resurrected, Jesus said, I have accomplished the work that you have said for me, sent me to do. And what was the work? He then says, I have glorified your name and I will glorify it. And so there's an understanding. He says, I've glorified your name. I've done the work that you have told me to do. And then he says the very next phrase, I'm going to glorify it again. So this idea is that Jesus in completing the work of the cross and overcoming death by the resurrection still has work to do. And even though his ascension has taken place, that thing that we celebrate today, him ascending into the heavenlies, just because he has left the earth does not mean that he is not involved with the earth. And so his continuing action that he takes is done through the church. 
In this way, uh, Robert Weber, the the writer of one of the books we're kind of highlighting from time to time, Ancient Future Faith, uh, says that the the church can be thought of as the continuing presence of Christ in the world. And that's a very important thing to understand. And that is what this first passage in the book of Acts is teaching us. Christ's ascension teaches us to look for a progressive victory of God over the power of evil in the world. Although Christ had totally defeated Satan, sin, sickness, and death in his birth, baptism, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection, there was still a work that he had to do. You see, Christ's goal uh, was not just to pay for your sins on Calvary and to come out of the grave and to defeat death for mankind. His his mission, he says, is I have a fire that I wish to kindle on the earth, and I wish that it were already coming. And this fire that he's speaking is, he's, this is a, an allegory or pro- poetic language to talk about the burning fire of the Holy Spirit, the purifying presence of the Holy Spirit through the world to make the earth like the kingdom of heaven. That is the prayer in that Jesus teaches us to pray in our Lord's prayer is that the earth would be like the kingdom in heaven. That is, that is the earth manifest would be progressively more and more like how it is in heaven. That is the place where God's will is done and the place where God's presence is uh, manifest. And so this idea that Jesus has ascended does not mean that Jesus is just done with things. He's not done with us. God is not disconnected from his creation, but rather Jesus went to uh, uh, apprehend a role of authority that he did not exercise just on the planet in his earthly ministry. So Christ's ascension, therefore, not only speaks of the father's honor and favor towards the son, that is, the father had, had seen Christ's work on the, on the earth, his faithful death on the cross, his triumphant uh, resurrection out of the grave. God, the father was not just pleased with the son, but by Christ's ascension, we know that God is also pleased with us. God is fully confident in the continuing unfolding of the mission of Christ at the hands of the apostles. That is through the church. And we know this, Later, we're going to look at a verse that highlights this in more detail. But then in Acts 3, we begin to see this, uh, the basis for this question that the apostles ask. They, They had seen Jesus resurrected for 40 days. And it says in verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. So, so. What this is saying is multiple times, Jesus had demonstrated the fact that he had res- been resurrected and was a real living human being. Although not with a body like we had for the gospel tells us that at one time he entered a room that was already closed. And so in some way, we, we know that Jesus's body was not like your body and my body that we can't, you know, I can't just leave the building through that wall over here. But in, in some way, Luke says in verse three that Jesus had presented himself alive. We're reminded of the time where he ate with Peter on the shore. We're reminded of the time where he appears in the room and many other examples. So he says to them that uh, after, after he's been resurrected and is among them for these 40 days, he is speaking to them about the kingdom of God. 
when, when you think about a person who has the last, they know that their time remaining on this planet is short. They are not going to waste their time with trivial matters. If you, if you know somebody who uh, maybe is on their deathbed, they're going to gather their family around and they're going to put their house in order. They probably will not be discussing Twitter or sports center or, or whatever. They're probably going to be speaking about the most important things in their lives. They're going to be reminding their children about the legacy that they wanted to set in their life. They're going to be reminding their children uh, of how they should live. This is what Jesus does in his last days on the earth before he's ascended. He speaks to them about the kingdom of God. And the ascension did not catch Jesus off guard. This wasn't like Jesus was kind of still thinking, I'm going to continue my ministry. And then the father just kind of like vacuum sucks him into the air. This is not at all the picture of the ascension. Jesus was very intentional and it was part of his plan to ascend. So in Acts 1.6, we see this question that the apostles say. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will at this time you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, one of the things that <clears throat> this is kind of a tricky question for us to understand without some context, but for uh, many centuries, the Jewish people, the, the people of Israel had interpreted the prophetic witness and the prophetic testimonies of different prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., all the prophets of the Old Testament, as when the Messiah comes, he will restore the kingdom to Israel. And they had over time developed this into an idea that the restoration of the kingdom through the Messiah would actually create, uh, would actually create this golden age of uh, the Davidic kingdom being restored to Israel. In, in the time of David, Israel had the most prosperity, uh, probably save only for that of his son, Solomon. But in the time of David, they were conquering their enemies. They were taking the land that God had prophesied, uh, prophesied to them. And they had progressively defeated the enemies in their land and had established their nation. And so over time, this idea that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring uh, a righteous kingdom back to the throne of Israel and throw out the Herodotians and throw out the, the Romans. And at this point, Jesus has been teaching them for years that this, this kingdom that he's bringing is not a kingdom of this world. So many times in the gospels, we see the, the, uh, the apostles totally get it wrong. Uh, we're reminded time and time again of Peter, you know, when he denies Christ, he, he says, I'll be, I'll be with you even to death. And then he just doesn't get it. Other times they're fighting amongst themselves. Who's going to be the greatest. This is one of those times they, they say to Jesus, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he had just spent 40 days discussing the nature of the kingdom of God. And they still didn't understand. In fact, he, he had lobbed judgments for six chapters in the, in the book of Matthew. The last six chapters are an extremely clear prophetic testimony against the people of Israel and their religious leaders who had turned from God and established their own righteousness through their own interpretation of the law. And so he had been making these prophetic judgments against the kingdom of Israel and, and the fact that the, 
that the people of Israel, although God had chosen them moreover than any other nation in the earth, not for what they had done, but he had given them total grace and called them to himself, Israel would not have God to reign over her. And she had rejected him time and time again. And so Jesus has come and they even killed the son. And so Jesus testifies against them. And he says that there's, you know, if you remember in Matthew 24, not one stone is going to be left, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The idea here is that Jesus is removing the kingdom from Israel and starting a new work. In Matthew 21, 43, the summary verse before these chapters, well, kind of in the middle of these chapters is therefore Jesus says, I tell you that the kingdom will be taken away from you. He's speaking to the religious leaders of the day and given to a nation who will produce the fruit of it. This idea that although God had shown grace to the people of Israel, they had just hardened their hearts against God and sought their own righteousness through doing the works of the law and not at all had, had been receptive to the things that God was trying to do for them. And so this, this question that the apostles uh, ask Jesus has a uh, profound implication for us. The implication is that Christ's patience in that moment teaches us to have hope when we do not understand God's leadership. It also teaches us that God will be patient with us when we don't fully understand, when we read the scripture, when we attend church, and we don't quite get it. There's no indication here that the, the apostles were trying to miss, to, uh, stumble in their, in their understanding of what their master was teaching. And it just seems that they were ignorant of what was really going on. They had been with Jesus and had learned many things and had understand, come to understand that he's the Messiah, et cetera, et cetera. But they still, this part of their theology didn't line up with who God was. And so Jesus here in his patience gives us great hope. In our times of ignorance, he does not cast us away, but rather continues to lead and to guide. And he sends and he promises to send to us the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, as Paul calls it, calls him to bring us into the truth of what God has always been saying clearly from the beginning. So the ascension not only states that Jesus has ascended, but it also reminds us and calls us to have hope and faith when we don't really get it. And we don't get it a lot. This leads right into the importance of the spirit. The ascension tells us that uh, the Holy Spirit is a vital aspect of a believer's life. Christ taught his disciples in the gospels that apart from me, you can do nothing. And he didn't say that they would simply be ineffective. He didn't say that they would just be, uh, you know, they wouldn't hit their margins or, or wouldn't hit their efficiency KPIs at the end of the quarter. He said, totally apart from Christ, the disciples, the apostles can do nothing. It, it's not just that they'll be really bad at preaching. They won't do anything right at all. It won't have any fruit. And before he ascended though, He's, he's about to leave them, and he says, before he ascends, he tells them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. In verse 8 in Acts, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the teaching here 
that Jesus is saying is, even though apart from me, you can do nothing, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And one of the ways that Christ has come to his church is through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we do believe and affirm in a literal second return of Jesus to the earth. However, in a very real way, Christ is present to the church and in the church by the Holy Spirit. Too often in our lives and in our ministries, we de-emphasize the importance of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We fail to remember that the Holy Spirit is God and that he is constantly with us to help us. We, we begin to think of the Holy Spirit as this force uh, or this substance rather than the Holy Spirit being a person. In fact, Jesus considered his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit to be much better than if he were here in the flesh. So this idea that Jesus is highlighting the Holy Spirit, he says, it's to your advantage. In John 16, 7, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This idea is uh, very practical, actually. If you imagine Jesus living for the last 2,000 years on the earth instead of being in heaven, if we were all to have problems um, and we needed to ask God's help, we would all have to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem or wherever Jesus happened to be. And there would be such a long line. It I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but in a real sense, it's to your advantage that the Holy Spirit is with you personally. You don't have to find Jesus in a kind of look him up on Google Maps sort of thing. You, Jesus, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, has promised to be with you. He has promised to never leave you nor to forsake you. And so he says it's to your advantage in a very practical way. It's to your advantage in a very deep and effectual way. It is to your advantage. Not only has our God taken on flesh and dwelt in, in, uh, in among us through the work and person of Jesus Christ living here in his earthly ministry, but God has come among us by his spirit and is with us continually. So this idea that the Holy Spirit is here to help us and he is a person and uh, it's, it's not enough to just say, well, I, I believe that the Holy Spirit is here. It is, it's kind of, again, a very practical way. If you believed that Christ was on the earth and you had problems and you needed to seek him out, you would go and do something about it. You would communicate to him. So often we pray as if God is so distant away from us when he has really promised for the believer to be near him or her. Um, and so this idea of the ascension, one of the implications we're looking at today, we're looking at the implications of the ascension. One of the implications of the ascension is the valuing and importance of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives and in the church. Another implication of the ascension is the totality of the victory of Christ. Without the ascension, the resurrection is actually complete. Now, that, that may sound a little bit silly. You know, if Jesus had just continued to live on the earth, um, the resurrection wouldn't be complete. What I'm saying is that the resurrection was a part of the victory of God over sin, death, and the world system. And it's actually the case that Jesus himself connects the idea of the ascension being part of 
the ending of the, the Passion Week and the fulfillment of the Passion Week plus the, the rest of the weeks. If you start at the beginning of the Passion Week, it's actually uh, literally seven weeks. So seven times seven biblically is, is talking about the, the utmost perfection. Uh, the, it's, a, it's a biblical numerology mechanism to describe how total Christ's victory was in not only his passion, but also establishing of the church, and then finally the ascending into heaven. And so Jesus himself, in the night before the crucifixion, in the great upper room discourse through of John 13 through John 16, uh, he actually connects this idea of the ascension being part of uh, of of the Passion Week. It's literally the capstone of the final work that Christ was doing on the earth. He says this in John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now, John 16 is right before John 17, the which in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays with the, uh, to the Father and, and has that struggle with uh, whether or not he's going to fulfill the, w- the will of God. And he not only overcomes all of the suffering, but also overcomes man's tendency to not do God's will. But before John 17, before, before his prayer for the disciples, before his prayer for the apostles, he says in, in some of the last verses that he's talking to the disciples, I'm going to go to the Father. But the next thing that he does is he is encounters suffering and then dies. And so this idea that, that Christ is going to the Father is part, it's intimately part of the work of the resurrection. Whereas Adam had failed in the garden of Eden and succumbed to sin and death, Christ totally triumphed in the garden of Gethsemane and not only triumphed in the garden of Gethsemane against the will of man, but also triumphed in the garden of the tomb. He not only defeated man's rebellious nature, but also defeated death itself. Whereas Adam had surrendered surrendered dominion to the usurper, Satan, Christ has overcome the evil world, uh, the evil one, yes, even the whole world, and now lives and reigns forever. At uh, Jesus' ascension, he is installed as the king over all the earth, and yea, even king over all the universe. Christ's victory over those things that were our enemies that we could not defeat was not just a sin victory, it was a total cosmic victory. So his, his ascending to the Father also has uh, an implication for this great need for man to live with God. In the Apostles' Creed series at the beginning, we had discussed this idea of first order questions. And these kind of questions are questions that philosophers ask and really questions that all men ask, such as what is ultimately real? Who is God if there is one and, and how do I know him? What do I have to do in my life? What is the meaning of life? These are some of the first order questions. And when you answer the first order questions in the biblical way, that is God exists and he is real and I am his, cre- I am his creature, there becomes a very serious problem because you begin to understand your own sin and you begin to understand your own need to live with your creator. This is a major tenet of the Old Testament, this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. In the, 
in the work that Moses had done in bringing the Egypt, uh, bringing the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians, there was in the uh, encounter that Moses had on the mountain with God, the, there was a warning put out that if any of the Israelites or any of their animals had come and even touched the mere perimeter of that mountain, they would, they would be completely burnt up. That is God's holiness amongst his people was restrained. And so the tabernacle is established and then the temple is established. And there are these mechanisms put in place by God to protect the people against God's holiness and wrath. And so there's this problem of God needing to come and, and live with his humanity with his creatures, but these creatures have fallen and have sinned. And therefore the nature of God and the nature of sinful man are at odds with one another. There's no compatibility. It's like oil and water. It just doesn't mix. And when it does mix, it's really bad. It's probably like nitroglycerin and whatever else makes a bomb. It's, it's a terrible outcome when the holiness of God comes amongst a people that is defiled. And so this problem that we have in the Old Testament, this major idea, this major tenet is the idea of Emmanuel, God coming and living with us. So Christ in his taking on of humanity at his birth overcomes this problem and becomes for us God in the flesh and walks among us and lives with us. But not only uh, did Jesus encounter and totally take on our humanity, and for us, as God himself uh, established God's presence among us as Emmanuel, he also has totally satisfied the need for us to reside with God. There's, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. God, God needs to come and live amongst his creation, and his creation has a need to be in communion with the creator. But in the sin of Adam, Adam had ran and hid himself from God. In the Old Testament, time and time again, one of the major themes is that God does not put his people at a distance. Man puts God at a distance and then blames God for the distance. Man had been running from God. God didn't expel Adam from the garden right away before the curse was applied. Man hid himself from God. He sinned and pushed God away. It's kind of like this idea. It's almost heretical to say that mankind can push away God. Wouldn't that say man has some power of God? Think of it like this. Uh, if you went up against a giant stone, we're talking like uh, Island of Man kind of stones, huge monolithic giant stones. The way that man <clears throat> pushes himself away from God is like if you went up to that stone and pushed as hard as you can, you wouldn't move the stone at all, but you would push yourself back away. In the same way, mankind had totally moved God out of, out of the equation. We had pushed God away. And so Jesus comes and, and, and lives among us and overcomes that distance. But in the same way, in his ascension, he has become for us man living with his creator. In taking on his flesh and the retention of his human body, as he ascended, he established mankind in the heavenlies. And this has profound theological significance for us. And, <clears throat> and what I had referred to earlier, his ascension proves that not only is God favorable towards Christ, but because Christ has come and taken on humanity, he has now been made favorable towards mankind. 
In John 20, verse 17, Jesus says to his disciples that, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus says to to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, he says, do not cling to me. Now, remember, one of my main points is that the ascension is the capstone and fulfillment of the resurrection. If you, if you believe that, you'll see it. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me yet, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Jesus had been teaching his disciples <clears throat> that the apostle, uh, that that the father was favorable towards them, those who he had called. But his ascension solidifies this idea. In, in mentioning the ascension, Jesus not only calls him our father, but he makes an even more personal connection. I am ascending to my father and to your father. He not only establishes the brotherhood that he had been living out with the apostles, but also connects us in a very concrete and explicit way to our relationship with the father. So these are the implications of the ascension, that, that Christ has a total victory over all of our enemies. And that this victory takes on a, a sort of, if you will, metaphysical dimension to it. Not only Christ had defeated all of our enemies of sin, Satan, sickness, but also has triumphed over creation itself. The creation that had been subjected to futility, he has totally overcome. In, in the same way, Christ going to the Father teaches us that we have a place with God. That is, those who put their faith and hope and trust in Christ are assured that they will be with him where he is. And so the gospel call that the ascension brings to us is, uh, is threefold, really fourfold. Um, as the ascension is part of the gospel, and we know that the gospel calls us to do things, uh, what does the ascension call us to do? I think it calls us to do four things. As part of the gospel, it calls us to recognize Jesus as king over the world, a king before whom we must kneel and bow, not merely accept him into our hearts. Jesus has established as king over the universe through his ascension and glorification. He, that calls us to recognize him as king. And, and we begin to think in these terms that sin is non-kingdom behavior, that good works that the New Testament talks about are simply those behaviors that are, correla- or that, that are uh, appropriate to being citizens of his kingdom. You can think of it as a law of the land or paying homage to a king, but this is the idea for a believer. We not only have the Holy Spirit with us to empower us to do good works, but we're compelled to even more because we want to bring honor to our king. And failing to celebrate the ascension means you will fail to apprehend him as king overall. Whether you say or believe he is king overall, it, it just won't be there like it should. The second thing that uh, the, the gospel calls us to do is it calls us to pay attention to the importance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told his disciples that they should not leave Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high, and then they would be witnesses. So the ascension calls us to wait and eagerly expect and anticipate the Holy Spirit coming among us. And so just, we're not in Jerusalem, so we're not going to go to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. But likewise, we follow the same principle. 
We should live out our faith as being empowered by the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, not merely just knowing scripture and doing it in our own fleshy, selfish way. We should live empowered by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the ascension teaches us to live in a right manner, knowing that Jesus will return one day as the angels that day had taught the apostles. They say to him in verse 11, why do you look into the heavens? Don't you know that he'll come back in the same way? And so his ascension points forward to that day where he will return. And on this day, Paul, Paul warns us that he will render to everyone the just deserves of those things that have been done in the flesh. That is everything that you have done will be evidence for whether you have followed Christ or not. <clears throat> this is a, is a warning to us and also at the same time causes us to have great hope knowing that at the end of the age, Jesus will right every wrong and put everything into place. We are warned to live godly and upright lives full of humility and mercy as we do the works of God. And then finally, the ascension, its final and most important implication and gospel call to us is to do the work of the gospel and the work that the gospel requires us to do. I'm not talking about the Great Commission, although the ascension points to the Great Commission, but the the ascension primarily tells us to do this thing. In John 6, 28 through 29, Jesus is asked this question. They then said to him, what must we do to be doing the works that God would have us to do or the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he sent. Just as Jesus returns to the father, we're reminded that he was sent by the father and the work that the ascension calls us to do ultimately is to believe in Christ. The Ascension tells us to place our trust in Christ, that he is now as king over all the earth, bringing all of his enemies in subjection. And one day he will bring justice and set everything right. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. God, we...